So when my wife and I, now wife and I, were getting ready to be married, when we were engaged, we spent uh, quite a few weeks in premarital counseling. Um, I'm not sure if in, in your time before getting married, if that was a part of your um, equation or not, but it's pretty standard in the, in the church when you're going to get married that you will sit down with the pastor who will marry you and you'll spend some time in premarital counseling. And it's not what you would traditionally think of as counseling. It's not in the sense of, you know, you're worried that you're not compatible, that you're not going to struggle. Um, there's some really bad movies that have been made about premarital counseling, and it seems like the whole point is to figure out if you are actually made for one another. No. But instead, it is to set you up with the tools for a successful marriage. It's to, to set you up in, in a way that allows you to communicate and work through the things that will help you have a strong foundation as you begin your life together. And I remember when we were sitting through premarital counseling, one of the number one things that we spent time talking about was the idea of expectations. Um, second only to perhaps communicating. But we talked about expectations. See, every one of us, whether we know it or not, come into a, a new marriage or a new relationship or, or new family dynamics or even perhaps new jobs with certain expectations. And so we spent a lot of time thinking through how do we, number one, unearth what the hidden silent expectations are, and number two, how do we deal with them? Right? Maybe as a couple you're getting ready to be married and you, you think, well, when I was growing up, here's the way things worked in my house. But what you don't realize is two of you are coming together as one. And so, at least for me, there were many, many instances of expectations that had to be worked through. Maybe in your house, the, the husband always handled the finances, while in her house, the wife always handled the finances. And so you have to figure out, what's that going to look like? Maybe you have an expectation that you're always going to be home for dinner, and in another person's house, dinner was kind of grab and go. It's those little things that if we don't approach things carefully, it can add up. And I would argue that a lot of strife and, and anguish when it comes to not just marriage relationships, but relationships in general, if we dig down, we find that they are based on poor expectations or miscommunicated or not communicated expectations. See, our anguish in our life comes because we come into scenarios with expectations. We come to church with certain expectations. We come here expecting that things will go a certain way, that maybe we'll get the music we want or whatever. All the things in our life that we have expectations for, right? And a lot of times, they are not met. Sometimes it's funny. I want to show you a series. Um, if you haven't been familiar with this yet, um, there's this thing on the internet called Nailed It. And uh, it's, it's Pinterest kind of beautiful things that, that people have done. And then the next photo is essentially someone trying to recreate that and failing epically. And so it's this hashtag nailed a thing that you see on the internet. I want to show you just a couple of these. Expectations versus reality. As we're in the Christmas season, here is an expectation. We make gingerbread houses and they will look majestic and beautiful. The reality, a little more like that. <clears throat> right? Expectation is SpongeBob cake. Reality. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is, but I like that they took a SpongeBob figurine to try to save it just a little bit at the top. Right? Expectation, shark cupcakes. Reality, scary sharks that you should never show your children because they're actually scarier than a real shark. The Betty Crocker train cake. The reality. <laughs> 
the Cookie Monster Cupcake, the reality. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. This beautiful art piece of Crayola melted colors, and the reality. And then finally, if you have children, this picture is in your dreams and in your dreams only, because the reality probably looks a little bit more like that. <laughs> Let's all be real. We, we all have expectations. And while those are funny, a lot of times we come into life, not just secular life, but our spiritual lives, with certain expectations. See, we expect things from God. And some of those expectations aren't bad things. We can expect things from God that are in line with his character. We can expect that God is always good, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful. We can expect that when God says he's going to do something, he will do it. He will come through on his promises. But there's expectations we have, some of them obvious and some of them more subtle in the Christian life that God does not live up to. And as a matter of fact, he doesn't live up because he exceeds them. But when we aren't careful, misplaced and misguided expectations can really, really mess us up in our desire and our struggle to grow as followers of Christ. See, God doesn't operate under your desires and expectations. He operates on his own. And so we have to be cautious. This morning, I want to take a walk through just a survey of a few different points of scripture as we, as we approach the birth of Christ to show us some of the ways in which God works in the midst of expectations of people. All right, we're going to take just a quick brief overview, and then we're going to spend some time seeing how those experiences ought to shape the way we tailor our expectations. And so the first place I want to look is in the book of Genesis chapter 3. This is right after the fall of man. Eve has eaten the fruit. She's given it to Adam. He's, given the, he's eaten the fruit. The Lord comes to them and, and calls them out. And he says, you know, what have you done? And he said, well, the woman gave me fruit and I ate it. And so he's starting his, his kind of lecture of what is going to be the consequence of their actions. And in the midst of that lecture, one of the things we see is something that we don't expect. See, what was the promise that was given? When Adam and Eve were created, they said, you can eat of any fruit but don't eat of that fruit or you will surely die. And so we expect that there would be a death as a result of that disobedience. But instead, what we find is this. So the Lord has just spoken to Eve and now he speaks to the serpent. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. See, in the middle of this passage where God is kind of reaming them out, he tells them, listen, everything's going to be different now. Right? You can see your nakedness. You're going to have to toil with the ground. There's going to be pain and childbearing. All these things that the Lord lays out as, as a result of their disobedience. In the midst of it, we get what we call the Proto-Evangelion. It's, it's first gospel. It is the first glimpse. Think of this. Immediately after man first falls into sin, the thing that God does is give them a glimpse of the gospel to come. He tells them, look, between you and the serpent, there's going to be this strife and this enmity. You're going to struggle. You're going to butt up against each other. But in the end, the serpent is going to but strike the heel 
of Eve, your offspring. But your offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. It's a foreshadowing of what will happen when Jesus comes and goes to the grave and rises again and wins victory over evil by crushing and defeating the enemy, Satan. It is the first taste we get that we don't expect to get. They anticipated sure, certain death. Instead, what they got was a promise of eternal life to come. God works way outside of our experiences and expectations. But my favorite one, perhaps, is the story of Joseph, 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 Joseph later on in the book of Genesis. See, Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob was the one who wrestled with God and was then named Israel. So he had a whole slew of sons, and the youngest of them was Joseph. And so Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. Imagine being one of 12 kids but your youngest brother is clearly your father's favorite in so many ways. And not only that, but your brother lets you know it. See, Jacob gave his son Joseph this, this technicolor dream coat that was colorful and beautiful, and he would wear it around his brothers, and he would brag about how he was the favorite, and he would make himself so elevated that all the brothers grew to hate him so much. And so one day, the brothers seized an opportunity as they were in the field, they captured their brother Joseph, and they threw him in a pit. And then they had lunch, and they were trying to decide what to do with them. And this, this is perhaps one of, my, one of my favorite humorous passages in scriptures. Let's, let's take a look at what happens next. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were, car camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin down, going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. And when Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. If you have siblings... This has to cause you to laugh a little bit, right? They, pull, they, they see these people going by, they're plotting to kill him, and then the one brother says, you know, we, we shouldn't kill him. We should sell him off to these traitors over here because, well, he is our, our brother. He's our own flesh, after all. Right? Like, how many times have you maybe perhaps wanted to sell, if you had the choice to sell one of your siblings growing up into slavery, you would have taken that opportunity at any turn, Right? They don't want to kill him, and it sounds like maybe they're being lenient, but it's actually even more selfish than that. They think, well, if we kill him, then we won't make any money off of him. If we sell him, he's gone, and we get paid. It's great. It's a win-win. And so Joseph gets sold into slavery. He goes from being the favorite son of 12 to being a slave in Egypt. And there's a few things that we have to keep in mind. At the time this transaction happens, Joseph is 17 years old, and the math is going to start to be significant, right? All of a sudden, Joseph is not living the life he was expecting to live. Right? But Joseph goes through a whole series of events. Joseph ends up becoming um, one of the highest people in the land of Egypt. He's imprisoned after a while for doing the right thing when it comes to Potiphar's wife. He, he sits in jail, and he starts to, in, in his faithfulness to the Lord, interpret some dreams of people who later tell Pharaoh about him. See, Pharaoh has this dream 
about cows and all kinds of weird stuff that he can't decipher. And so he's asking for help. And, and the two people that are near him say, you know, when we were in prison, there was this Joseph guy, and he interpreted our dreams. And so Pharaoh says, bring him to me. And so here Joseph goes from being in prison to standing in front of Pharaoh, and he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And he says, listen, what your dream means is that you are going to have seven years of prosperity. You're going to have all the crops in your land that you can imagine. Everything's going to flow, you know, milk and honey. Everything's going to be beautiful. But then you're going to hit a really hard famine that is going to last for a long, long time. And so you have to get ready. If you're wise, you'll spend the next seven years preparing properly so that your people will survive rather than die out. And so Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that here's what happens next. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, Can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said also to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him with fine linen and garments, and he placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and servants called out before him, Make way! And so he placed him over all the land of Egypt. When this happens, they estimate that Joseph was around 30 years old. So what that means is the expectation of the favorite son being sold into slavery turns into 13 years of struggle. For 13 years, Joseph is put through the ringer in and out of prison, sold from, from the highest bidder to the next, struggling through life, not living the life he expected until finally, 13 years later, he finds himself in charge of all of the land of Egypt one of the greatest kingdoms of that time. And Pharaoh says, you're, you're only really second to me in name. I'm technically above you. But in every way, you have all my authority. And so Joseph takes that authority. And he's faithful with it. And he walks with the people and he prepares and they store up grain and food of various kinds. And when the famine comes, they're ready. All because the Lord shattered expectations. This whole mass of people is saved because of what God did. Now, I can guarantee you, if you've walked through struggles in your life, for those 13 years, Joseph probably wasn't sitting there thinking, all right, let's see what God does with me next. Something great is coming. He probably despaired quite a bit. We walk through struggles in life that cause us to despair. And it's sometimes hard to see what the Lord is up to. Maybe you've experienced issues with your health or family or job loss. You've spent time for a year or two and wondering what's going to come next. Imagine 13 years of uncertainty. All to save a specific group of people. But it gets better. 
See, when the famine struck, it started to spread throughout the, the land that surrounded Egypt. And eventually, we go all the way back to the brothers of Joseph, and they are starving. Their family is struggling. And so Jacob, their father, sends all of the sons to Egypt to ask for food. And so all of these brothers come and they end up in front of Joseph. They don't recognize him right away, but they end up in front of Joseph. Joseph knows exactly who they are. And imagine, imagine as a sibling who had your brothers mess with you this much. You have this moment where they're all in front of you and they need you to survive. Oh, man. Right? The vindictive nature in our heads just starts to spin in overdrive. But here's what happens instead. He gives them the food and he tells them to go and bring their family back. And eventually, he reveals himself to them. And the brothers were terrified. The one who they sold off as a 17-year-old was now the one standing above them, deciding their lives' fate. He could have them executed at a moment's notice. He could have easily said, listen, you ruined my life. I only ended up here because of some happenstance. I got lucky. Someone heard me interpret a dream, and so I ended up second in charge, and I'm not going to ruin it. I'm just going to make all of you guys go away. That's not what Joseph does. See, Joseph is faithful. And he offers what, through Scripture, seems like almost instant forgiveness. And when we hear him speak... I think we understand why and how he's able to do that. Because Joseph's expectation lines up with what God actually is like and how he operates. Here's one of the last verses of the book of Genesis. It closes with this. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Joseph understood something that we really need to get. The Lord has a timetable and a plan for the greater sense of humanity that so far outweighs the little things that we expect to happen in our lives that it's not even funny. He will use us in ways to shape and change this world and his kingdom according to his purpose. And sometimes it will take years of us having no idea on what on earth God could be doing or working on. But he is at work. This is one of many stories. If you look through the Old Testament, you can countlessly go through account after account of God working through people in unexpected ways. We can look at Moses, whose entire life was altered when he came to him in a burning bush and said, you who can't really speak in public, I'm going to use you to free my people. If we think about the whole of Scripture, the Joseph story didn't just save the Egyptians and reconcile him to his brothers. It actually is the thing that brought the Israelites to Egypt in the first place. See, those brothers came, and they stayed in Egypt, and they ate, and they had their fill, and then they multiplied over and over and over again, and all of a sudden, we have the Egyptians. When we get to Exodus, and the Pharaoh of that time is dealing harshly with the, with the Israelites, it's because they've grown so much in number that they're a threat. And then God delivers them using a Moses who can't public speak. We can look at the story of Ruth, who is a nobody, 
But through her faithfulness, the Lord actually works through her line to eventually end up with Jesus. We can think of the times that God worked through the people that he punishes them and sends them into exile only to increase their faithfulness and bring them back to the way that he wants them to live. See, God works on his timetable and not ours. His story is 100% compromised of shattered expectations all through and through. And then we have Jesus. See, Jesus is born, the birth that we celebrate in just a week and a half, in every way outside of the expectations of what people had. See, people expected Jesus to come as a king, but he shows up as a little baby. They expected him to be worshipped by all the religious leaders. Instead, he's worshipped by shepherds who are nobodies and pagan magicians. And the religious leaders despise him. They expected him to rule and reign. Instead, he grows up as a poor carpenter. They expected that he would have prestige and all the respect in the world. Instead, he chooses to have dropouts as disciples who didn't make it through Hebrew school. And he uses those 12 guys to change the world after his time is done. They expected that he would deal with the Roman rule and oppression, but instead he goes after the religious leaders. See, Jesus in every way works outside of the bounds of our expectations. I love this quote by a guy. His name is John Bloom. He's a staff writer for Desiring God and author of a couple different books. He says this, The immoral Samaritan woman never expected him to show up near her well at midday or to be the first recorded person to whom he declares himself to be the Christ. The hopeless paralytic never expected him to come to the pool and to heal him. The man born blind never expected to see him and discover that the Pharisees, for the life of them, couldn't see him. The widow of Nain never expected him to show up during the funeral procession and to raise her son. Mary and Martha never expected him to not show up when Lazarus fell ill, but yet he did. He was supposed to conquer the Roman Empire. Instead, he gives himself up to be brutally murdered by those who loved him most. Death was supposed to hold him, but it didn't. The grave was supposed to be his end. Instead, it was just his beginning. See, Jesus shatters the expectations that we have. And when we put him in a box, and when we expect him to bless the things that we want, when we expect him to be okay with the behaviors that we want to engage in, when we expect him to think the way that we think, things do not go the way we want them to go. Because God does not operate within your little set of expectations. He blows them out of the water. And so this Advent, we need to make sure that as we prepare for the arrival of Jesus, that our expectations in every way should align ourselves with his. And how do we do that? Number one, we have to be every day in his word. We have to read what it is that he reveals about himself. See, we have this book on our shelves. Many of you have seven or eight of these books on your shelves at home of the Lord revealing himself to us of, us, of him telling us everything about himself that he wants us to know, about his nature and his character and what his plans are and what he will do and how he wants us to live. We need to be in that word daily on our own time so that we can be saturated with everything that God says about what we should expect of him. Not the other way around. Second, and this is the hard one, we have to learn to embrace God 
in the middle of struggle and suffering. One of the number one reasons that people walk away from their faith in Christ is in the middle of struggle and strife. See, they follow the Lord their whole lives. Maybe they came to know him in high school and they get all enthusiastic and then illness strikes or a loved one passes or they befall some kind of something they're not ready for. They struggle economically and all of a sudden, what's the phrase? A loving God would never put me through this. Who are we to presume what a loving God would or wouldn't do? We serve a God who had someone suffer through 13 years of slavery so that an entire people might be saved. You don't think God can put you through struggle for a couple years for the greater good of the kingdom? That's the God we serve. And he will deliver you from that struggle. And if not in this life, then in the next. He will. See, one of the greatest things you can do is to continuously look for the ways that God is at work in your life and remind you and be ready to understand that when struggle comes, it is the Lord working through things. And when we can't understand it, just remember Joseph sitting in a prison cell. He probably couldn't either. But God is at work. He promises us that. And his promises are worth it. They will come to fruition. Number three, we have to condition ourselves through prayer and practice to align our expectations and desires to conform to his will. See, one of the things uh, someone told me once is that God answers every single prayer. He answers it either yes, <laughs> no, or later, or different. And one of the things that we have to understand about how God works in our lives is that the Lord doesn't give you what you want. That's not how Christianity works. It's not transactional. If you've ever been in a church that tells you, if you're just faithful enough, the Lord will provide you with all the desires of your heart. No. The Lord doesn't provide you with the desires of your heart. The Lord provides you with his heart. The Lord will tell you what he wants, and he will slowly, over time, if you allow him to, he will shape you and he will change your heart to desire the things that he wants you to desire. And in that way, he will give you the desires of your heart because you'll be after his things, right? You might want that raise or promotion or new car. The Lord says, no, I'm going to give you contentness. I'm going I'm to give you the ability to be content with what you have so that you can use that money to further my kingdom. I'm going to tell you, I, I just, I want time that I don't have. And the Lord might say, I've kept you busy because the things you're doing are important. And I'm going to use them to shape not just you, but the people around you your church community, your town, your state, your, your nation, the world. I'm going to use you to affect change. Right? The Lord will change our hearts if we allow him. Our expectations of what this life is supposed to be about, of the things that are valuable, the things that are important, are so minuscule compared to what God can do that if we let ourselves be shaped by his expectations, he will do immeasurably greater things that you and I can ask and imagine. And so this time, in this season of Advent, as you prepare, I ask you to spend some time this week reflecting. What are those things that you expect from God, from church, from other Christians that are not healthy things? It have very little to do with what God wants and everything to do with what you want. And I want you to pray that God would give you a peace and an ability to, to lay those things at the foot of the cross. And he will. He will. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your nature and your character is so far above and beyond what our expectations could ever hope to be. But Father, our desires are strong and the things that we want are hard to get rid of. And so, Father, we ask for your supernatural ability. We ask that you would grab a hold of our heart, that you would shape us and mold us into the people that you want us to be. God, we ask that you would give us your hearts. That we would desire your things. That we as a people, individually and as a church, would come to a point where the things that we desire are the things that you would want for us. And then in harmony, we would work together to further your kingdom. God, be with us this week. Be in our homes. Be with our families. Keep us safe. But more importantly, God, we pray that you use us. We pray that every one of our homes will be filled with testimonies of the ways that you are at work. And that we could come over the next few weeks as we gather with family to share those. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen.